I'm very excited about this talk today. I'm going to take you to a passage that I have read many, many, many times before. And I've studied it in depth at times, but never as in-depth as I did in preparation for this talk today. And uh, I was thinking about it. I'm just like, you know, why have I never, at least it's been a long, t- it would have had to have been so long ago that I've forgotten it by now, but, but I don't remember having given a talk from the passage that we're going to look at today. Now, last week, we were to, went to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, and what Jesus said there is very, very important. But what Jesus says in Luke 15 is at least, if not more, and I, you know, personally, I think it's even more important, at least for our application of it, what we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 15. Now, I'm certain that many of you have read this chapter, but... Um, Maybe you have not uh, considered that this is the only recorded time in all of the Bible when Jesus told three parables in, in a row, just sort of back to back to back, rapid fire. He just started one, and he went to the next, and then to the next. And so anytime you see something uh, you know, quite similar to that happening in the Bible, there's a message within that all on its own. And so when you see Jesus doing this, three parables in a row, certainly it tells us that he wants to assert a great truth. He wants to get our attention. In fact, what Jesus does is he actually tells three stories, a story about a lost sheep, a story about a lost coin, and a story about a lost son. And the reality is, it's it's three different stories, but it has a common thread. And the story is, is like a different version of the same point that Jesus is wanting to make. Now, I think what is really helpful to us, and we don't often have this available to us, uh, so I want to just sort of set up the setting, as it were, and give you a little bit of an idea as to what was going on when Jesus gave these three parables in a row. On this particular occasion, Jesus is not in a synagogue. He's not like out on a hillside somewhere uh, giving a teaching. Jesus is actually standing in the public square, as we would say. He's in the public square. It's a very, very visible place. A lot of the people in the community have gathered around, and Jesus, as he's teaching, he can look over and he notices that among those who are listening is a very large contingency of a non-religious group, and they've gathered around him. And Jesus knows that among his followers, that among this non-religious group, these uh, deeply sinful, very secularized people, he knows that they have different values. He knows that they have different lifestyles, different languages than what a credible life of one of his followers would have. But uh, we need to give them credit because I think Jesus does. They are there and they're listening to his teaching and they're seriously interested in what Jesus has to say. They're not there to rebut him. They're not there protesting. They're, They're not there shouting him down. They're not there giving voice to what he's saying is not true. What they are doing is they are listening intently because they're seriously interested in what Jesus is saying. Now, that is one group of people. But also, to help us better understand the setting, we have to take into consideration that there's a collection of another group of people, and this group of people is so unlike the group of people that I just mentioned to you. This group of people is actually a group of uh, elite, you know, I say that cautiously, an elite group of religious leaders. And they're there, uh, and they're not really listening to Jesus as much as the other group is. Uh, I think they're listening. And Jesus is really about to grab their attention. But I think they're mainly there watching. Because increasingly, 
they are becoming uncomfortable, this elite religious group, they're becoming increasingly uncomfortable the way that Jesus is interacting with irreligious people. You see, among this group, and Jesus used this term, and the Bible uses this term for them, Pharisees, they would never think of associating with this group of people that Jesus is talking to, this irreligious group. Uh, lifestyle, language, everything so distant from what Jesus was and his followers were. And so Pharisees would not associate with this group. They, uh, they would not eat with them. They would not even think of eating with them. You know, in our day and in our culture, our uh, sharing meals together, basically it would be, you know, somebody comes over to our house for a while, we go to their house, or probably primarily maybe you meet at a restaurant and you're there an hour, maybe an hour and 15 minutes or so, But uh, in Jesus' day, if you were to share a meal with somebody, that would be like a three or four hour ordeal because it was more than just the meal. It would be about the whole community and relational uh, portion of that setting. Now, you may think, well, I've been in a restaurant or two where the, you know, service was so poor. I, I was there three or four hours, but it was not intentional. It was accidental. But in their case, it was intentional. And Pharisees would never do that with irreligious people. They would not associate with them. They would not eat them. They would not uh, eat with them. They would not think of befriending them. And so the reality is they just kept them at a distance. In fact, history tells us, you may find this as interesting as I did, history tells us that rabbis would not even consider associating with people like this, not even to teach them the law. So that would be like saying if you were to take like a Bible teacher today who was responsible to help people to understand the Word of God, but they would segment a group of people, irreligious people, sinful people, secularized people, and they would just say, well, you know, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. I'm not even going to teach you the Bible. And I mean, how horrible is that? But that is the way a lot of the rabbis were in Jesus' day, and they just didn't want to have anything to do with these people. For among these rabbis... Uh, and among these Pharisees especially, these people violated everything that they stood for. They violated their theology. They violated their tradition, their social etiquette. In fact, and you really need to capture this. I want you to really listen to what I'm about to tell you. How how many of you are with me right now? I'm just checking in with you. How many of you are with me? Wave your hand at me just like this. I can really see your hand. And let me remind you of a principle that we have in place here that if you notice at any point during this talk that I'm given, if anybody nears you starts dozing off, you have full permission to smack them, but you must do it in Jesus' name for it to be like biblical. So just smack them and say, okay, wake up in Jesus' name. I just woke you up. Now listen. So uh, you can do that. But this is what I want you to listen to. So these two groups, remember Jesus is in the public square. Do you see this? All these irreligious people, all these elite religious people, you know, two very contrasting groups. And this group over here, this religious elite group, in their mind, they think that God is so disgusted with people like this other group of people that God is just Everything within him is he's having to restrain himself to just keep himself from obliterating people like this from the earth. In their mind, God really wants to annihilate this. You know, they are disgusting to them, so therefore they translate that over onto God, and they say, well, I'm sure that God is disgusted with people like this, their lifestyle, who they are, what they do. Then God must feel the way we do. And therefore, God is really demonstrating a tremendous amount of patience to not just wipe them off the face of the earth right now. 
So it is in that setting. You've got a picture of it now, and Jesus has a choice to make. So what can Jesus do? Well, Jesus can just forget about the irreligious group for a moment, and he can turn and confront the Pharisees right on the spot. He could do that, but he chooses not to do that. The other thing that he could have chosen to do is he could have just ignored the Pharisees, this religious group, and he could have just pretended as though they were not there, and he could have just spoken directly to the irreligious folks that have gathered around that, again, are listening and interested. But Jesus is a master teacher and who makes perfect decisions in everything that he does. He actually chooses that he's going to speak to both groups at the same time, and he's going to do it very creatively by telling these three parables back to back to back. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Now, on a side note, Later, when we get to the parable of the lost son, uh, we'll have to see where we're at time, and we may not have uh, as much time to unpack this. I want to go ahead and give you a picture into this. When we come to the parable of the lost son, and a lot of us have read that, but maybe we didn't fundamentally understand it completely, it is a picture because there's three primary characters. Remember, there is the younger son, who we often refer to as the prodigal son, who basically takes his father's inheritance. Once you're in that day, in that culture, you know, the, the eldest son would get the primary percentage of the estate. Uh, the younger siblings would get a portion, but not as significant as the elders. Elder child's would, elder son primarily. And so, you could sort of cash out even before your father passed away. And that's what this younger son did. And the Bible tells us that he just went and uh, he, he just lived recklessly for a while till he came to his senses and came back home. The other primary character in this story is actually the father who every day comes and he scans the horizon looking for this lost son who he is heartbroken over to come home And uh, the third character is actually the elder son, the older brother, who is so frustrated, you know, that when his son uh, or when his brother comes home, that his dad goes into like full party mode and he's, he's angered by it. You've never done anything like this. I've been here. I've been doing this, trying to do the right things. You've never allowed me to have any kind of party like this with my friends. And what we may not realize is Jesus does this very intentionally, and it's a picture of the Father, is a picture of God the Father, who is standing, waiting. In fact, you're going to see he's doing more than waiting as we get deeper into this talk, but he's waiting for the Son, the repentant sinner, to come home. And that's what the younger son is a picture of, the, the repentant sinner. Can you imagine? Now, keep in mind who Jesus is speaking to. Can you imagine who the elder son in this story represents? The elder son represents the Pharisees themselves who are angered. This elder son is angered that his father responds so lavishly when this reckless, rebellious, now repentant brother comes home. So Jesus told these three stories back-to-back, rapid-fire, and he did it very intentionally. He did it for a reason. Now, here's what I want to talk to you about in the remainder of our time together, and I want you to keenly dial in for the next few moments. And these three parables are very common themes that just show up in every story. And I just want to walk you through them, and I want us to talk it out a little bit. So 
All right, in each of these stories, here's the first thing that you see. This is common thread. You're going to see it up on the screen. You may want to write it down somewhere or put it on your tablet, your notepad somewhere. Here, here's one common theme. It's the first one that we notice actually, and that is that something of great value is missing. There is a lost sheep that is missing. There is a lost coin that needs to be found. There is a lost son that needs to come home. Now, let's talk about those stories uh, briefly. If, if you were a shepherd in this day, in this context that Jesus is giving, if you were a shepherd and you were to have even one sheep wander off, you would do everything. You would turn over heaven and earth in an effort to find that lost sheep because your care, your love, your compassion toward that sheep was just immeasurable. The sheep that a shepherd would have, by the way, culturally speaking, uh, Bible scholars tell us that for, uh, for a shepherd, typically, they would have on the low side, they would have a responsibility for as few as 20 sheep, but as many as 200, generally not less than 20, generally not more than 200. And so a shepherd, depending on, you know, like age and responsibility and experience and such, would be entrusted. And so in this case, Jesus sort of finds sort of a middle uh, number, and he says, if a shepherd has a 100 sheep and one of them wanders off, what will the shepherd do? Something of great value is missing, and the shepherd will not rest until he finds the sheep and brings the sheep home. Similar story in the, loss of the, uh, in the loss of the coin. In this case, it is not a shepherd, but it is a very serious matter for an extraordinarily poor woman who this coin that she loses, keep this in mind, this is very important, the coin that she loses most likely represents about one-tenth of what is a very meager estate that she had. And how could any sensible father, when you go into the third story, how could any sensible father or parent react to a child that just wanders away? And Jesus, as he's addressing both groups at the same time, a point that Jesus is really wanting them all to understand is that something of great value is missing. There is a sheep that is missing and a shepherd's reaction to that. There is a lost coin represents one-tenth of her estate, and it has great value, and it is missing. A son is missing. And I was thinking about that while working on this talk. Now, I've, I, I don't want to uh, paint this illusion that I'm a great camper because I am not. I about got cured of camping one time. My boys were in Royal Rangers. You hear that. We've got that at the North Campus. been years and years ago, even before we came to Lakeland. They were small. And somehow, by somebody, I got talked into going on a camping trip. And I, I'm not like, you know, a, a pro at camping. I, I don't know, you know, how to set up the tent and all that kind of stuff. I guess if I had three days, I could figure it out. But, uh, you know, the campsite was set up. And I can remember somebody saying to me, uh, hey, Pastor Jeff, over here. Hey, Brent, Drew, your tent is over here. Now, I, I want to believe that this was not done intentionally, but this tent was actually erected on a tree root that hit me about mid-back all night long. I went to sleep feeling great. I woke up needing healing in my body. But let's just say I was a great camper, which I'm not. And, you know, this idea of a child wandering off, let's just say, for example, I say while the kids are small, hey, Jairus, I just want to have some, uh, some daddy time with the kids, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take them all camping. And while we're camping, let's just imagine, we're using our imagination, let's just imagine that one of them wanders off. 
And I, you know, I don't really, you know, because I got the two there and I've got stuff going on with the camp. So I don't really, you know, like go looking intently for this. And in fact, by the end of the trip, I haven't even, and I show back up at the house and Jerry says, oh, I'm so glad all of you are home. Hey, one of the kids are missing. Now, how would she, just think about this now. How would she react if I said, yeah, one of them's missing, but I just want you to know, I brought the two quality kids home. Yeah. Hey, give me credit, Jairus. 66% of the kids are represented here. You know, two of the three, uh, they, they are here. Now, that, how many of you know that just wouldn't fly? That would not fly. And what Jesus is actually saying here is you've got to allow this to soak into your brain that that which is missing, the sheep, the coin, the son, it all really matters to somebody. And Jesus wanted both groups to realize that just as lost sheep matter to a shepherd and a lost coin has great value to an impoverished woman and a lost son causes a father's heart to break into a million pieces, so does our heavenly father's heart ache and grieve over lost people. In fact, I want you to see this verse on, up on the screen. It's not the teachings of Jesus. It's later in the New Testament. This is 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, but it conveys the same heart of the Father. This is what it says. The Lord is not slow in doing what he promised, the way some people understand slowness. But God is being what? Patient. How many of you are glad that God was patient with you? How many of you? You were glad that God is being patient with you. And, but God is being patient. He does not want Who? anyone. He doesn't want anyone to be lost, but he wants all to change their hearts and their lives. Greg Laurie has written some very sobering words for all of us to consider, and I'll just read it to you briefly before we move on. He writes this, and think about it. Think about it deeply. He says, be honest with yourself. Measure your response by your behavior and your choices, not by your feelings or your intentions. And then he poses this question, sobering question. Do you really care about the plight of the unbeliever? Do you really? Do you really care about the plight of the unbeliever? I mean, how does that affect you? How how do you feel about people in your life that are far from God? Irreligious people. Their lifestyle, their language is nothing like yours. How do you feel about them? Are, are Are you more like the Pharisees who you just, you're so disgusted with how they live, what they do, how they speak, that you're just so disgusted that you just translate that and you think, well, God's just as disgusted with them as I am. And he's just holding himself back because he'd really like to just get rid of them all. If that's how you think, then you're entirely wrong. And that's why Jesus has given us a glimpse into how the Father really feels about irreligious types. It leads us to the second theme that I want you to notice out of these three parables. Again, there's something common that's found in all of them. In each of these stories, the second thing that I want to mention to you is this. A diligent search takes place. For a shepherd to go searching for a lost sheep was not only terribly inconvenient, it could be personally hazardous as well. It was, it was not a safe thing to go out looking. You would expose yourself to all types of danger. But a shepherd who was a true shepherd would put all of that aside. And because he cared about the sheep, a diligent search would take place. And he'd forget about his own personal convenience, and he would even forget about his own personal safety, and he would say, you know what I've got to do? Whatever it takes, I've got to find this lost sheep, and I've got to bring this lost sheep home. 
You look at the next story and you give consideration to this reality. It would not be effortless for this poor woman to recover her lost coin. That would not be an easy task. You say, well, you should just look around a little bit. What you may not understand is that in an eastern house in that day, and we take this for granted, all of our homes or apartments or wherever you live has windows in it, maybe big windows. But in an eastern house in Jesus' day, most homes would not have windows. And if they did have windows, it would be very small windows. And why does that come into play here? It comes into play because if she were to lose this coin, which again represents about one-tenth of this very tiny estate she had, then she would have to look just as diligently for the coin in the middle of the day as she would if it were 3 o'clock in the morning because her house would be very dark and she would move every piece of furniture and she would light whatever light she had to light in order to find this coin because a diligent search would be made. This past Thursday night, I ran into a wonderful young couple that attend our church, Ryan and Chelsea. A great couple. I was, you know, you won't be surprised by this. I was walking into a restaurant to eat. I was just really hungry. I'm walking into a restaurant, had some family with me, and I see Ryan and Chelsea walking uh, in our direction, and I start speaking with them, and we're having a conversation. And Chelsea, at some point in that conversation, she, uh, she brings up an incident that had happened to her just a few days prior to. I did their wedding some months ago, and so I was there. You know, they exchanged rings and, you know, take that ring, place it onto Chelsea's finger and repeat Ryan these words after me, and, and he put that ring on her finger. She said that uh, just this week while she was driving along, she came to a red light, I think, and she had taken her, her uh, wedding band off and her engagement ring, and as some of you ladies do, she's just putting some lotion on her hands, and she reached back down to put her rings on, and her wedding band that she got on her wedding day slipped between the seat, and she could not get it. And Ryan couldn't get it. And nobody could reach it. They couldn't even find it. It fell in such an inconspicuous spot that it could not be found until the car was taken to the dealership. All four seats were taken out of the car. The car was torn apart. It cost them a considerable amount of money. But Chelsea just said, and we all understand this, you know, a lost ring, her wedding ring, warranted a diligent search. A shepherd goes searching for a lost sheep. An impoverished woman goes looking for a lost coin. A heartbroken father stands on his front porch and he searches the horizon every day. And he says to himself, perhaps this will be the day when my lost son returns home. Perhaps this will be the day. And when Jesus makes this announcement, friends, standing in the public square that day, both groups are staggered by his words. You see, the secular non-religious group, when they hear Jesus say that because he's already communicated that, uh, you know, something that is missing from somebody has great value, now he just sort of says because it has great value, whether it is a sheep, a coin, or a son, an all-out search is going on. When this non-religious group hear this, they're like staggered by his words, and they're saying to themselves, really, there's hope for me. There's hope for me. I never thought it until today when I heard Jesus speaking uh, that God could care enough about me, that God would care enough about me, that he would track me down and he would invite me into his family. I want to just say this to those of you that are here today and you're not yet in a relationship with Jesus. I'm just telling you, God is tracking you down, not to annoy you, not to burden you. God is tracking you down because he loves you and he wants you to come home. He wants you to be in a relationship with himself. He knows that life in him is a much better life than the life that you're living right now. 
and he's not going to give up. He's extraordinarily patient, and he is hunting you down because he loves you so much, and he's just saying no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, whoever you've done it with, whatever your life has been, here's the reality. I want to bring you home, and I love you, and I'm not going to give up. And sometimes you think you have these random thoughts about God and random thoughts about, these are not. This is the Holy Spirit. This is God working in your life to just let you know, I'm not giving up on you. You've not gone too far. You've not done too much. I'm searching for you. I love you. And it hit that irreligious group that day, and they're like, really? God would track me down? He'd invite me into his family? But they were not the only uh, group that was staggered by the words of Jesus. The Pharisees were as well. For them, what Jesus just said is a brand new thought, a brand new thought. What Jesus is saying here to them is, is he's saying, you know what? This is how my heavenly Father feels about wayward people. He feels so strongly about this that all of heaven is seeking them out. And maybe those of you who are on earth ought to seek them out as well. Interesting thought, or at least it is to me, I think it will be to you as well. Do you know that rabbis in Jesus' day would agree that God would welcome, that God would somehow welcome a repentant sinner, but it was breathtaking for them to hear Jesus say that God is a seeking God, that God is a God who would take initiative to find people that are far from him. And an all-out search takes place. Shepherd, he's got a lost sheep. Again, a sheep was not an, an, an inanimate object. A sheep was like a member of the It was like a pet. You ever remember this teaching that Jesus gave in another portion of the Bible where he said, and my sheep hear my voice? And they would understand that. They know the voice of the shepherd. To a shepherd, a legitimate shepherd, those sheep were like their pets. It would be like, it would be like those of you who have pets. How, how many of you, by the way, how many of you are dog lovers? Let me, let me just see your hand. You are dog lovers. I had no idea we had that many Georgia Bulldog fans right here in this service. Wow, that's amazing. Now, those of you who have uh, dogs, I mean, I can remember having dogs when I was a child, and then we let Brent have a dog, and I always pretended that I didn't like this dog, that I didn't want this dog, that this dog was a burden. I always did that while anybody was around. And then when it was just chancing me at the house, it was a totally different story. Because no matter where I was, he'd come and sit down beside me. I always had to be leaned against my leg. And I'd talk to him, pat his head, love on him a little bit. And so even though I was the guy who said, we don't need a dog, when it came time for us to have to get rid of the dog, I knew it wasn't going to be emotional for them, but I had no idea that I had become so attached to a dog. And that's how it would be for a shepherd. It's not just like this, okay, there's one among a hundred. It's not just this woman who say, oh, it's just one coin. Not just a dad who said, oh, once I've still got a, a hardworking, honorable son at home. An all-out search took place. Look at this next verse. You'll see it on the screen. In fact, I'd love it if you'd read it with me. Everybody, 100% of you. Let's all read this verse together. It's out of the chapter that we've been talking about. Luke chapter 15 and verse 7. Here we go. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. And it's this last theme, last thread. 
that Jesus mentions. He's already mentioned that something of great value is missing. Common thread among all three stories, that a diligent search, because something valuable is missing, a diligent search takes place. And then here's the last thing that Jesus teaches to both groups. In each of these stories, and you'll see this on the screen, there's tremendous rejoicing when lost things are found. When the shepherd, having found the lost sheep, sends word to his friends that he has found the lost sheep, all of them are invited to a very enthusiastic party. I've tried to imagine what that would be like. I mean, this would be a, this would be a huge sense of jubilation for the shepherd because when he went out looking for the sheep, he never was quite certain as to whether or not he would find it or find it alive. But when he found the sheep alive, Jesus said he was so intoxicated with excitement about having found the sheep that when he gets back, he sends out the word to all of his friends, hey, you're all invited. And I can just see this guy, hey, saying to all of his buddies, hey, I found the sheep, the sheep I told you about, sheep I was concerned I'd never be able to find, never be able to bring back into the fold, never be able to bring you back home. Guess what? I found him. It's party time, guys. Come on over. I'm paying for it all. Chicken minis for everybody. The woman who finds the missing coin announces to her friends that this is a call for joyous celebration. The father, you read the story. I hope you'll read it as early as today. Tomorrow at the latest, you'll notice that as he stands, you know, on the front porch every day and the son comes walking, when he sees his son, he does a couple of things. Culturally, this would not happen because a, f- a father would never move toward a son. That would be undignified. He'd wait for the child to come to him. But in this case, he has been looking day after day for his lost son. And so he takes off in a full sprint when he sees that, yes, this is his son, and he can't stop hugging him and kissing him, and he brings him back home, and they kill the fatted calf, and there's this huge party going on because this father is filled with unprecedented amounts of delight. And Jesus is very clear in his teaching that every person really matters to God. Every person matters to God. And here's the point that I want to make before we're done. Please, every one of you, you've got to hear this. Every one of you hear this. Forget about your schedule tomorrow. Forget about what's happening today, lunch, you know, your list. Forget all that for just a moment. I want you to hear what I'm about to say. Jesus is telling us that because lost people matter so much to the Father, equally they ought to matter to us. But I'm more than a little concerned that we're not as concerned as we ought to be about lost people because we're busy about our own lives. We've got our job, our house, our family, our friends, our stuff. And we're not thinking as often as we need to about those that Jesus is thinking about the most. It's not coincidental that Jesus said, Jesus said, will not a properly thinking shepherd leave 99 to go after one? Why? The 99 are found. It's the one stray that needs to come home. Very intentional. And Jesus was saying, lost people matter to me. And they matter to the Father. And they ought to matter to you. Hear me out, okay? I'm not trying to start anything. not trying to make anybody mad. But I fear at times we're more like Pharisees than we are like Jesus. Just think about it. We, we get irritated by people, you know, that we work with, people that we know. 
We get irritated with their language. We don't like what they say. We don't like what they do. We don't like how much they drink. We don't like all the people they're sleeping with. We don't like their lifestyle. And, and you know what? We start becoming so much like the Pharisees that it is frightening. And that's what we see. We see their language. We see their lifestyle. We see their choices. And if we're not careful, we'll get so irritated that we'll think God feels the same way we do. And he doesn't. That's what Jesus is telling us in Luke 15. Because God has the ability, and he wants us to have it as well, to look past the language and past the living and past the lifestyle and to see a person just like you and me who matters a whole lot to God. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie before. It's called The Guardian. And it... uh, Kevin Costner was the star, so a lot of you ladies have probably seen it. That'll hit you later. But in this movie, he's like this veteran rescue diver, and he's legendary, and he's about to retire, and there's this young, up-and-coming, hotshot diver and rescue diver. And and this guy, Costner, the character that he plays, he's just like, uh, you know, world record, how many people have saved as a rescue diver and all of that. And so this young kid, ask him, who's now starting a career that this guy's finishing. Ask him one day, he said, so what's your number? And he's thinking, you know, he's going to tell me the number is somewhere between two to 300 people that he saved. What's your number? Man, what's your number? And, you know, he has that competitive streak in him. He really wants to know. And in his mind, he's thinking, all right, if he can do, here's what I'm going to do in my life, my career. And so as Costner's character is walking away, he said, what's my number? You want to know my number? My number is 22. 22. And the young guy's disappointed. He said, 22? Really? 22? I thought you'd save many more people than 22. He said, I never counted the ones that I saved. The number that I counted was the number that I lost. I lost 22. And God is wanting you and I to have that picture. You know, Easter provides us with a tremendous opportunity to invite people to church. You've got to be very intentional. You cannot be haphazard. And I'm just telling you, friends, if you show up next week, and I hope every one of you are here next week, but I hope every one of you brings at least another person with you because here's what's going to happen. While you're in that service, and when you see this play out, what's going to be going on in that one-hour block next week, and we're approaching Easter from a different way, sort of the three-dimensional side of Easter. I'm not even going to tell you what that, that means. Well, look at this next week. You'll be sitting in service, and you'll say, oh, man, I wish I'd brought. And you'll start thinking of people in your head, people in your family, friends that you have, people that you, I wish I'd brought them. Because it's going to be a straight-up message about how somebody can come into a relationship with Jesus and what Easter really means. And I'm just asking you, take those Easter invite cards. And do everything you can. And take that influence and prayer card that we passed out last week. There's another one in your bulletin today. And these cards you're giving away. And you just align yourself. Say, hey, you know what service are you coming to? And don't try to look at your own personal convenience. If they say, well, hey, I'm coming to the 845 service. Now, you may think that Jesus is not even up at 845, but I promise he is. And if they say 845, well, hey, I'll be there, 10, 11. And you meet him, sit with me. And be very intentional. And you give them these cards. And then this card, like we have right here, influence. And 
on it is one of the verses we looked at today. There's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed. I will pray to God who loves lost people and use my heaven-sent influence to invite the following people to join me next Sunday, Easter, March 27th. You write their name down. And every day this week, maybe multiple times in the day, you just take this card out and you see the names of the people that you have invited. And these are the people that you're praying for. And you're believing that when they show up next week, they're going to fundamentally understand as this irreligious group did on that day when Jesus is standing in the public square, Luke 15, that lost people matter to God. So much so that he is seeking them out to save them. And then when they come into the family of God, as we just mentioned right here, there's tremendous rejoicing when lost things are found. We love the thought that on that day when we gave our life to God, that the entire population of heaven stood their feet in joyous, thunderous applause. But we've just got to know that will also happen for our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers. And I pray that that will happen for many of them next Sunday, Easter Sunday. Would you stand for a closing prayer? God, thank you so much for this day. There's so much at stake. Something of great value is lost, much greater than sheep, coins, is people. People matter more than anything, more than anything. Something of great value is lost, and it warrants an all-out search. And God, you want us to be involved with you in that process. You are a God of initiation. You are a seeking God. And we partner with you, God. And anytime people come into your family, there is much rejoicing. Your word says there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who comes home than 99 of us who are already in the family. And we just pray that we will see this in unprecedented ways in the lives of those that we invite to come to church and to join us next Sunday. Give us courage to be what you want us to be and help us to totally and completely renounce any form of Phariseeism that would try to encroach itself into our life and help us to see people not as Pharisees do, but as you do. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody say, amen. Love you. Have a great week. See you.